Today on the Bill Kelly Show podcast, health experts say Canada's fourth wave of COVID-19 will be among unvaccinated, but it's going to affect all of us. The pandemic has given rise to right-wing extremism in Canada. Green Party leader Annamie Paul calling for unity after an internal challenge to her leadership was put on the back burner. And some Olympic events have already begun, but are the Tokyo Games in danger of being cancelled at the last minute because of COVID-19? The Bill Kelly Show podcast is now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin today, we're going to talk about a number of different COVID-19 related issues. Number one, the fourth wave. It's coming, but health experts say it's going to be among the unvaccinated. However, it's going to affect all of us. We'll explain in a matter of minutes. Ontario's top doctor announcing new vaccination goal to combat the Delta variant. And Dr. Kieran Moore is also saying that he's not sure there's going to be high enough levels of immunity to COVID-19 across the province by September for kids to return to school unmasked. And it may be that we have a very cautious start in September uh, and then monitor the situation because I don't know if we'll achieve the high, you know, that high community immunity that we need in September. And he says the best thing that people can do to ensure schools can return safely is for many eligible Ontarians to get vaccinated ASAP. Our first guest is Dr. Merrick Smea, infectious diseases physician and chief of laboratory medicine with St. Joseph's Healthcare and Hamilton Health Sciences. And uh, Dr. Smea joins us this morning. Good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. I'm well, thank you. Um, the fourth wave among the unvaccinated um Obviously, if you're not vaccinated, you're obviously more susceptible to contracting COVID-19. But this is an issue that's not only going to affect those who are unvaccinated, but it's going to affect all of us because it could lead to some restrictions, maybe a shutdown here or there, uh, increased hospitalizations. The collateral damage, the ripple effect is pretty big. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, a, a year ago, we had nothing that we could really prevent infection with other than social distancing and masking. And, and we remember how we stepped that up over several months as the world learned how to try to control it. And that did control it. But, you know, as society, we don't want to control it that way long term. That's not a great way for society to function. For the first time, we have it in within our capacity to fully control this disease, to get it down to very, very low levels. Uh, but it's all about vaccination. And certainly the major uh, uh, spread in places like the United States uh, is amongst the unvaccinated states that have very low levels of vaccination have the highest rates of COVID right now. And and the CDC has been multiply warning this is a, a disease now of the unvaccinated. Unfortunately, that then spills over into some of our vulnerable, our elderly who might have been vaccinated but might not have, uh, you know, a perfect immune response. They still will have some vulnerability, less than without vaccination, but they still may still get uh, COVID and of course the immunocompromised those where they have a very weak immune system the vaccine doesn't take well and they still have some vulnerability to COVID as well. Why the vaccine hesitancy why is this a thing I mean mm. we're in a global pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a strange thing. You know, I, I, I talked to somebody yesterday from the media and we talked about how measles, by getting up to about 95% vaccination rates for measles, we've been able to essentially make it non-endemic to North America for the last 30, 40 years. You know, I've had a medical career spanning about 35 years. I've seen a single person with measles and that was in Africa. I saw a child who died of measles in Africa about 30 years ago. I've never seen measles in Canada. That's because we vaccinate. Over those years of, of 
my career, those 35 years, there have probably been, you know, 10 plus million deaths from measles around the world. That's all vaccine preventable. But we've done a good job in Canada. We, we vaccinate for measles. You know, we wear seatbelts. How many lives are saved every single day from wearing seatbelts? Canadians are amongst the most, you know, agreeable people in terms of public health measures like seatbelts. I think 95% of us wear seatbelts. Can we get COVID vaccination rates to at least 90% and preferably even higher? Because I think that's what it'll take to control this uh, this outbreak. And that's the new goal, at least for the first dose, for Dr. Kieran Moore, the uh, top uh, doctor in Ontario. But back to the vaccine hesitancy, what's, what, what makes it even more maddening is we've seen so many COVID-19 patients in, in TV interviews that, that, you know, they've contracted the virus, they're in hospital or they're recently released from hospital and they thought they'd never get the virus. And after they mm-hmm. did, they mm-hmm. wish that they had gotten the shot. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, you'll have the, the widow whose husband at age 62 died of, 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 of COVID. You know, the person who didn't want vaccination but ended up with a double lung transplant because of very, very severe COVID destroying his lungs. I, I think... Partially, I think there's been, you know, a quiet and and sometimes vocal movement about vaccination for as long as there's been vaccination. For 200 years, there's been, you know, since uh, since generous original uh, vaccine uh, for smallpox, which obviously has been eradicated worldwide. Um, You know, there's always been some vaccine hesitancy. There's always been those who would be interested but need better information, need better reassurance. And traditionally, that reassurance came from your family doctor. And of course, many people don't have a family doctor or don't have that same sort of ongoing long-term relationship with a family doctor. Um, And sometimes that can be very reassuring. Of course, the vaccine rollout for efficiency has been through these massive clinics, very, very efficient for those who are already convinced but it's not a mechanism of taking people and spending an hour with them to say, why, why are you having second thoughts? What are, what are the ways that we can convince you? The other is public health is, you know, providing excellent information. But there's always some skepticism of public health as kind of an arm of government. So those who have a skepticism of government will also be skeptical of public health claims. So I think that, you know, we need kind of have everyone on the same page, but still tolerating dissent, still tolerating the fact that there will be side effects, there will be different opinions, and we have to be very transparent about that, but at the same time, very, very insistent that despite all potential side effects and other things like that, you're still overwhelmingly better to get vaccinated than not, and, and as a responsible member of society, um, that you're contributing not only to your own health, but to those around you, your loved ones, you know, your elderly parents, uh, if you visit a hospital, you don't want to be the person who spread uh, uh, infection into that hospital. So I think that, you know, we, we, we kind of, we, we, we need to have a society that's open and can talk about side effects, can talk about those. But we also need to learn to either trust certain authorities or learn to better judge. Because I think there's so much information and misinformation that people have too much information, not too little, but they maybe need advice and help in terms of how to judge that information. It's almost in some cases there's paralysis by analysis because there's so mm-hmm. much information coming in. Our first guest this mm-hmm. morning is Dr. Merrick Smea. He's the infectious disease physician and uh, chief of laboratory medicine with St. Joseph's Healthcare and Hamilton Health Sciences. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show on 980 CFPL London, 900 CHML Hamilton. Uh, Rick in for Bill this week. Let's move over to schools. We had Dr. Peter Uni on the air yesterday from the Ontario Science Table saying that even in the lowest risk cases uh, in in most schools, that kids are probably going to have to wear masks. And that shouldn't be surprising, should it? 
I don't think it's surprising. I think we know masks work. I think masks are also reassuring, and I think that even young children can learn to wear masks. Um, I think what's, you know, what's, what's incontrovertible is that there is damage happening to children by not being in schools. We do need to get kids back to schools, and I'm frankly disappointed that we didn't try that back in June. I think a month of trying to see how we can do it safely, uh, even though I can understand some of the public health thoughts, I, I think that would have been really useful. I don't think schools were a major spreader of infections in Ontario when we had them kind of intermittently open. But I think the discussion should also separate high schools, where virtually everybody in high school is 12 years and older. They're all vaccine eligible. Can we get, you know, that group up to 90% vaccination? Because at that point, there may be so little risk that you can start to liberalize uh, masking and other things. But I think it's fair to say that come September, yes, I'm, I'm expecting uh, schools to be open, but masking, and, and I think at least for the 12-year-old and up, there should be a huge, huge uh, attempt to get every child vaccinated. And just like we do for measles and other things, if you're not vaccinated, there needs to be a medical reason or a religious or, or philosophical reason, and that the onus should be on people to prove that they've got an, a, a reason not to uh, and that everyone else should actually be vaccinated because that's how we've got measles up to 95%. There have been several uh, variants of COVID-19. Delta may be, obviously right now, is, is the most serious. Mm-hmm. Um, is it likely that another one is going to emerge sometime soon, somewhere around the world? Yeah, I think that uh, we, th- there already are various variants in, in South America and parts of the States and in, in other parts of Asia. And even the Delta variant, there's two variants of that. There's the main one, and then there's kind of Delta Plus, which has additional mutations. So Delta is the primary, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, VOC going around in Hamilton right now. In fact, if you take all, all COVID, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of COVID anymore. But right now, of all the COVID going around in the Hamilton area, about 70% of that is Delta. So Delta is emerging as the main new strain um, and it is somewhat more vaccine resistant you do really need both doses for optimal protection um, and so everyone feels that the september let's say we have an outbreak you know a- another wave in the fall september october november that's almost certainly going to be delta um, as the world gets more vaccinated the only way covid will kind of continue to circulate is by mutating and by having some relative resistance uh, to vaccination. So as long as there are a lot of unvaccinated people, uh, you don't have that vaccine pressure. Once we have a lot of vaccinated people, uh, we will have sort of vaccine pressure. The COVID that can get around the vaccine will be selected for. um, And the way we get around that will be probably, you know, to really optimize vaccination rates and maybe eventually we'll also need boosters. Speaking of uh, vaccine, uh, vaccine trials are continuing for children. Um, Are are they being conducted or or, uh, do they have to be conducted differently than what the adult trials uh, were involving? Um, yeah, they won't be as big. I mean, the, you know, the original trials for Pfizer and, and, and the other vaccines were, you know, in the order of 30,000 people followed by about for about six months. I think for children, the overwhelming thing is, can we prove safety? And there's no reason to think they won't be as safe in, in a five-year-old as in a 13-year-old, but that has to be proven. So need to prove safety so that parents can be reassured. Uh, and then secondly, some measure of efficacy. Now, efficacy, by that we mean, does it work? You don't want to have to vaccinate 
vaccinate 30,000 children in order to show that you reduce cases. So, you know, does it work maybe largely based on immune responses that the antibody levels are going up, that the T cells are, are going up? Um, so I think a combination of safety and some marker of efficacy uh, will be enough to get it licensed. My understanding is that a couple of companies are looking at children, but that is most likely the 5 to 12 or 5 to 11 year group uh, will have enough data by by her hopefully September. So I'm hoping that, you know, maybe not in time to start school, but hopefully before Christmas and before family gatherings, we'll have enough vaccination in children uh, to, to make, you know, make those family gatherings that much safer, to make school safer. Uh, and my understanding is the under fives may not be the initial push, uh, that there may not be enough safety data on them. But, you know, in general, uh, we, we know that, uh, that these vaccines have been incredibly well tolerated. We also know that even though COVID is generally a milder disease in children, there are children who are quite damaged by COVID. And we have to keep that in mind is that, you know, a vaccine doesn't have to be perfect. It has to be, you know, much, much, much safer than the disease we're trying to prevent. And I, 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 I'm hopeful that by September we'll have uh, at least an application to FDA and Health Canada, ideally some licensing of drugs to cho- uh, vaccines for children. And is it likely it'll be two doses as opposed to just the one? I think so. It'll likely be a smaller dose. Children, because of their smaller size, don't require as much of, of, of a vaccine. So it'll likely be a reduced dose. Um, but yes, I think they'll likely require two doses as well. Interesting stuff. Dr. Merrick's Maya, thank you very much for the time today. My pleasure. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A new report recently released uh, suggests that online activity by right wing extremists in Canada rose last year during the pandemic. And this is despite governments and social media companies trying to curb that extremism and curb that hate speech. But it is still going on. And it found that a lot of the extremism in this nation is being influenced um, by what has happened in the United States. And you would probably think, well, that's probably natural. A lot of what happens in the U.S., good or bad, um, you know, gets pushed to uh, media, social media, and uh, there's a lot of repetitiveness. This obviously is not the kind of repetitiveness that we'd like to see, but it is out there. So this report charted an increase in extreme right-wing activity in 2020 compared with what the Institutes for Strategic Dialogue found when it first looked at the problem in 2019. And One of the factors uh, was the pandemic, or is the pandemic. Millions of people had nowhere to go. You know, lockdowns were a thing. Restrictions were in place. Uh, People were losing their jobs. So what did people do? Well, they went online. And as a result, extremist conspiracy theories have flourished. And uh, minority communities, we saw the Asian community particularly being subjected to increased hate crimes and harassment. So much so, Global News put on a TV special. We branded on radio as well, Asian Hate. It was a phenomenal, um, really pulling the cover back to see how this is affecting uh, the Asian community. Researchers also found that there's are, there are ties between Canadian extremists and those in other countries as well. And I guess we shouldn't be surprised by that. But it also says... You know, there are platforms online, 4chan, uh, Gab, Telegram, that are a hub for extremist activity. 
So let's bring in our next guest. Dr. David Hoffman is Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of New Brunswick, and he joins us now. Dr. Hoffman, good morning. How are you? Not too bad, Rick. How are you? I'm not too bad. Um, pretty scary stuff here. Yeah, uh, scary, but but not really surprising for for scholars of this this type of uh, this type of behavior, or for security experts. This was uh, pretty expected, given um, the the tumultuous nature of, of COVID nineteen and, and the, the the vast social and, and personal changes that quarantine had on uh, the Canadian public. The perception is uh, an individual in their basement, uh, you know, online, in the dark, scheming about, you know, the yeah. most heinous things. Um, I know there's there's a bit of truth to that, but there's also truth to, quote unquote, normal people living normal lives, but yeah. thinking the same thing. And that's maybe even scarier because they're they're not they're a, a wolf's in, in sheep's clothing. Yeah, these these types of um, extremists that, that actually end up escalating towards uh, and committing an act of violence in the name of, of whatever political ideology they, they cobble together, um, it's not done in a social vacuum. Um, they, uh, every single terrorist uh, entity, or, or, or sorry, every uh, individual who, who wants to engage in some form of, of ideologically motivated violence or terrorism, um, is supported by a, a greater community of, of people who talk the talk but don't walk the walk. So for, for every anti-abortion bombing you have in uh, the United States, for example, you, you, you have a, uh, uh, an individual who feels propped up and validated by a larger community of, of anti-abortionists who, um, who uh, either tacitly or, or even overtly cheer this person on. And it allows them to feel connected to uh, a real or imagined community that uh, they're fighting for. So w- when you have these people sitting in their basements and, and becoming radicalized, um, they don't, they're, they're uh, in a real way, and it's going to sound a little bit odd, what they think they're doing is, is engaging in an extreme act of altruism. They see themselves as, as a defender of, of a, 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 in the most cases, to imagine, but uh, still a, a vocal community of individuals who feel that uh, whites masculine hegemonic powers is under attack or what it means to be Canadian or whatever they think it means to be Canadian is under attack. So um, it it is propped up by a a larger, um, uh, they're not violent, but they are problematic community of individuals who who support these types of uh, worldviews. Is what's drawing them in that connectivity? Because without the internet, they wouldn't necessarily be, or at least that directly connected to, you know, a greater cause, whatever that cause is. Yeah, uh, the internet is, is uh, I mean, each and every one of us are, 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 are uh, internet users in, in a modern day. You, you must be, and particularly during uh, COVID-19, it, it was the way in which people can really remain sane in, in a very uh, um, tumultuous period. And this uh, connectivity is, is absolutely tied to the spread and dissemination of, of right-wing extremist materials, but it's not the be-all, end-all. Um, scholars in this area, and, and particularly scholars of, of how um, extremist ideologies disseminate on the Internet and uh, how it affects what's called the radicalization process or, or how people uh, eventually, uh, a vast minority of people, escalate towards a violent act or activity. Um, it is a good primer for these individuals, but um, almost universally in, in large empirical studies of people who end up escalating towards an act of violence, there uh, there is uh, inevitably some form of face-to-face contact. 
Um, it, it is not only the Internet. The Internet is a good way to bring people in. It's a good way to connect these individuals with that imagined community that I mentioned. But uh, again, almost universally, people who the, the vast minority of people who actually end up, uh, you know, uh, engaging in an act of violence um, are connected with other people face to face and and go through this these some sort of um, uh, ideological shift through face to face interaction. So, if the internet is the gateway, uh, you know, the the door is opening to you know whatever the cause is. What are the steps, or what's the process for that individual to become radicalized and act out and be violent? Because it doesn't happen overnight. You've just asked the the million dollar question <laughs> that, that scholars have been uh, poring over for you know since uh, way before even nine yeah. eleven. Uh, it, it's called uh, uh, there's several names to it, but uh, the one I like the most is called the explanatory gap. We we have an understanding of of how people get involved in um, larger radical movements. Uh, we have an understanding of of some of the the group and 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 individual processes, but we still have not identified that crucial last component of, of why it is that only a vast minority of these people end up becoming actually violent. And, and that, that just that goes back to, to what we know about uh, these types of individuals and, and, and the, the larger context in which they, they uh, adopt these ideologies. There's, uh, anyone who actually escalates to violence usually is involved in some form of high-risk activism. So if it's eco-terrorism, for example, it's, it's usually an individual who gets brought in and then might go to a couple of protests here or there, might might join uh, certain organizations, and then for some reason or another they believe that um, uh, the only way to get what, what they want or what they need is through violence, uh, whether to send a message, wh- wh- whether to punish certain individuals. Uh, and it's again, it, it's... it's uh, will break away from this this larger com- the imagined community or or otherwise um and we don't know exactly what it is uh yet and it, it, it's uh it, i mean if if you manage to figure it out rick you have a <laughs> you have a, a big price coming your way i'll let you know uh is <laughs> yeah. is is the sense of martyrdom uh a factor in that yeah um especially amongst the right wingers um there's uh, this is part of, of some of the, the, the more recent research that's come out on how and why these people uh, radicalize within this particular context. But uh, there is a, a great um, culture of martyrdom amongst uh, amongst these individuals. You see very often in the, the manifestos that they, they produce that they, they call out... Um, I don't like naming names just because I don't like I don't like um, uh, publicizing villains or, or people yep. who have done uh, these types of acts. But they'll name they'll name like uh, famous incel shooters uh, from the United States by name as as inspiration, or they'll they'll um, hearken out to to these people who have become larger than life through their acts of violence. So um, part of it is is uh, a desire to transcend their uh, immediate. Uh, circumstances. So, uh, I mean, everyone wants to be a hero, and everyone is a hero in their own story. And there's there's kind of this this element of fantasy that plays a role in you know if I do this this act, uh, um, this this violent act, um, I will be revered. I might be in jail. I might be dead. But you know, my name will live on and be sung by my my brethren. And I, I mean, it's it's from a from a the average Canadian law abiding and, and and you know good hearted Canadian. That's that's an asinine. Uh, point of view, but uh, to them, it's it's real and it's it's a, a very big social reward for them. They they each and I can say pretty strongly that that uh, martyrdom is is a um, or or be, the the fantasy of becoming a martyr is is a driving factor.
Our guest is Dr. David Hoffman. He's an associate professor of sociology at the University of New Brunswick. We're talking about right-wing extremism on the rise in Canada, certainly over the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, 16 months and counting. Uh, it's also fueled some conspiracy theories, and I'll get to that in a second. But I do want to talk about, you know, because the Internet is unregulated, uh, there isn't a, a, an Internet police who can't shut down, uh, mm. you know, sites like 4chan and, and, and whatever the case is, um, which just leads me to believe that this is this is only going to get worse. Um, I I am not convinced that it'll it'll get worse. I, I think it'll just stay the same. Hmm. Um, uh, I'm not calling you alarmist or anything, but I, I'm a little bit I'm a little bit leery when when people kind of prognosticate uh, that uh, it's impossible to to combat these types of, of, of ideologies. I mean, it's incredibly difficult. Uh, um, I'm sure both you and all your listeners uh, have either experienced or or know someone who's tried to change someone's political view. Or, I mean, people tend to to uh, dig in and and uh, double down on their their political views or their or ideological or religious views when they're challenged. It's it's human nature. But at the same time, um, the, the unre- I mean, the internet is is the ideological and, and communicative wild west of our of our times you know uh, it's it's it cannot be regulated and nor should it be regulated um uh, and uh, to a certain degree right there's i mean um, there's there's certain things that should always be regulated like like child pornography and those types of things but uh it um it's not about attacking the or, or trying to control this is my informed opinion it's not about uh, attacking or trying to control the, the method of communication it's it's more about uh i think uh sending a, a proper counter narrative which which is being done by some very good uh and robust organizations here in canada that um uh, offer chances for for individuals who um are 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 go through their own uh, individual and social and and, and uh, psychological processes, and want to disengage from this type of life, or or prevent themselves from uh, being engaged in this type of life. And there's resources out there, and it's about supporting these these counter narratives. I think more than. Um, uh, regulating the internet, we uh, we spoke a little bit about martyrdom. On the flip side, the the internet and in in more uh, specifically uh, social media does offer some anonymity as well, so people can say what they want, and the repercussions are pretty minimal. Yeah, and again, this is uh, every one of every single person listening. Uh, I'm I'm sure is, can can um, can uh, relate to this, but the internet is is the anonymity is absolutely part of it, and uh, there's. There's very few, if, if not um, a complete absence of, of, of right-wingers on, on, online who use their real names. Uh, all the individuals and, and the individuals in the ISD report that you, you previously referenced, uh, they all use pseudonyms. And, and there is this element of, uh, I wouldn't say invincibility, but it, it adds a buffer. Uh, it, it, uh, it, allows, it, it provides, again, a, a platform for sharing and disseminating ideas that people uh, with with little or or no social consequences that people would never do face to face. For example, if a if a neo Nazi or a right wing extremist wanted to share their views in a public park, and he grabs the old soapbox and and steps on it and starts spreading you know the, the type of things they would online, they're likely to be confronted and and hopefully and and I would say almost definitively given Canadian society, be confronted by by um, law abiding and. and, uh, and good-hearted Canadians who, who find this thing reprehensible. But online with that anonymity, uh, those social conse- consequences are mitigated to uh, a certain degree. And uh, this is why um, 
this is why it's one of well one of the reasons why it's an ideal platform to to spread these types of ideas. I referenced uh, conspiracy theories a couple of minutes ago. They they almost go hand in hand with extremism. Some extremists base their thoughts and theories uh, on you know certain conspiracies or beliefs that they have, which may not necessarily, and in most cases, are not true. Um, how do the conspiracy theories fuel this dialogue? Yeah, um, trying to, to classify right wing extremism in Canada and, be, and beyond our borders is, is extremely difficult because these types of individuals, fueled again, um, going back to our previous uh, conversation, with uh, fueled by by the availability of, of dozens upon dozens upon dozens of different ideas on the internet. Um, th- there isn't really a, a monolithic right-wing or conspiratorial um, uh, narrative out there. Uh, what the extremist far right in in Canada engages in, and and this is goes from individual to individual and group to group, is uh, and it's a French word. I, I, I'm trying to find a, a good equivalent word, but bricoleur. They pick and choose whatever makes sense with their own particular circumstance, with whatever group they've vilified, with uh, whatever uh, um, purported mission they've um, embraced. And they they pick and choose from whatever's out there that makes sense to them. And they kind of cobble it together into this Frankenstein-like ideology. Um, uh, And conspiracy theories play uh, a big role in that. They're among some of the, uh, some of the, the ideological well. Uh, which these individuals and groups dip in, uh, I, I call it the right-wing idea sphere. It's it's, uh, and you, you might find like a neo-Nazi group that's also white supremacist and and what's called accelerationist that's trying to create a, a white ethno-national state. And you might find you know one province over a white nationalist group who who is um, uh, uh, also has elements of of you know uh, um, eco uh, eco sensitivity and uh, that only target uh, certain groups and so on and so forth. So uh, conspiracy theories, um, particularly ones tied to uh, the American far right, tend to play very prominently in in a lot of these um, uh, uh, cobbled together ideologies. It's um, it's a way for them to make sense of uh, and to uh, create a narrative for whatever they're trying to achieve. We certainly saw that at the U.S. Capitol uh, back in January with the insurrection that was fueled on, you know, the perceived notion that uh, the U.S. presidential election uh, voting system was fraudulent. And uh, there's been a lot of proof that uh, that has been debunked. Uh, Dr. Hoffman, thank you very much for the conversation, a fascinating one. And uh, we'll chat with you down the road. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Eight months of near silence on the infighting within the party she helmed for 13 years. Former Green Party leader Elizabeth May is speaking out and calling for party unity. Elizabeth May, the MP for BC's Saanich Gulf Islands, wants to clear up any rumors about her involvement in party power struggles. She insists she has no role in the Greens' governing bodies. Members of the party's federal council have clashed with leader Annamie Paul for months over issues ranging from the Israeli-Palestinian conflict to funding for Paul's campaign to win a common seat from Toronto Centre. May fully supports the Green Party but says our leader is Annamie Paul and only our members have authority to call that into question and she called on the Greens to pull together for what appears to be an imminent election campaign. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press. And now joining us is Annamie Paul, the leader of the Green Party here in Canada. Good morning, Annamie. How are you today? Good morning. How are you, Rick? I'm not too bad. Um, don't take this the wrong way, but are you still pulling the knives out of your back? 
boy, that's very that's some very vivid imagery for <laughs> ten o'clock in the morning. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> uh, no, no, it's good. It's very colorful. Um, no, I'm very, very, very pleased uh, that we um, are going to have the certainty that we need to move forward. And I mean, I was listening to your show before I came on, and you know, the wildfires raging all over the country, the choking smoke everywhere that we have. Uh, here in Toronto, the encampments that are being uh, shut down. These are real issues. These are the things that people care about. And I want more Greens to get elected so we can have a stronger voice talking about all of those issues. What did it mean yesterday for former leader Elizabeth May to come out and say, listen, enemy Paul is our leader, let's strive ahead. What did that mean to you? Well, it was great to have uh, have Elizabeth say what uh, you know what what is what what is true, which is that uh, I was democratically elected by our members with a very strong mandate, and uh, I just am seeking the opportunity to fulfill that mandate, especially given that we may be headed into an election very soon. I certainly hope we're not. Um, we shouldn't have to be, but uh, if we are, we need to be prepared. Our number one job is to make sure that we get more Greens elected so we can talk about the climate and progressive social policies. So absolutely, this is a time to focus on that. And, you know, the leadership reviews come. <laughs> There'll be one after the next election. So why do you not want an election now? Some might say, well, because, you know, you're, the, the, this party's in disarray. You know, you're, you're, uh, you're a leader that is, uh, you know, losing a grasp of the party. Some may say that. Others might say, you know, now is a good time because we're on the other side at least the perception is, of the pandemic, even though further waves are going to be happening. So why do you not want an election right now? Yeah, you know, I try to be, I'm hoping that the whole time that I remain in politics, I remain a straight talker. So, I mean, would it would it help us to have some more time to uh, regroup and to unify and, and to get going? Absolutely. But we've been saying well before this that uh, there shouldn't be an election. And why? Uh, we're still in a pandemic. Uh, we have, yeah, you, you've heard that. Our borders aren't open. Uh, part, parts of the country are still closed. Uh, we have uh, forest fires that are raging across our country. We have people who are just starting to put their lives back together. And there's a t- two years left in the mandate for this government. So if they're serious about things like bringing in child care, they just announced a just transition yesterday. If they're serious about helping Canadians get to the other side of this pandemic, then this is absolutely not the time to be calling an election, and they don't need to. So I'm hoping that they they won't. Um, I think it would be opportunistic, um, and I think that the time would be terrible. You said Monday in your news conference that you considered quitting. Why didn't you? Did, did, did you have it in your mind that, okay, that's it, I'm done, and then change your mind? Just take us through that process. There, there definitely were days that I that I woke up and said that's that's it. I've just I've just had enough. So, you know, I, I entered um, politics uh, pretty recently. I ran for the uh, Green Party in 2019, but I'm not a career politician, and I'm a policy analyst. I, I, I'm someone who really came into this because I believe that um, you know we can do great things together uh, through public policy. And there were times when I just thought, this, it's just not worth it. It's not worth the pain to my family. It's not worth the, you know, the pain to myself. It's not worth the damage to my, my reputation, my integrity, which means a lot to me. Um, and I stayed in first because, you know, there's so many Greens that are counting on me to stay in. There are so many Greens who supported me uh, to win the leadership. And also because I just didn't want to be another woman another woman from a racialized group to have 
step down within the same month, I would have been the third. And that would send a terrible message uh, to um, people in Canada about whether there's a place for diversity in politics. And I didn't want to be the person to tell them that there wasn't a place for it. We're chatting with Enemy Paul, the leader of the Green Party here on The Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL London, 900 CHML Hamilton. Rick in for Bill this week. I don't want to relive the past and what happened back in May, but I'm sure there's some listeners who are listening right now thinking, you know, I've kind of heard this story. If I, I, I kind of know what's happened. Uh, it basically, I don't know if, if snowballed is the word, but exploded or mushroom clouded when you did not publicly repudiate uh, your political advisor at the time. Do you regret that decision or, or, or wish that you handled it differently? Well, I would say that that's one narrative about what has happened. Um, and uh, I, I, I have always said and will always say that it's important in a role like this, to, when you're a leader, to be humble. It's important to acknowledge mistakes. It's important uh, to continue to learn. And I will do all of those things. Do I think that uh, we should have ended up here uh, because one of our MPs uh, chose to, uh, to leave to join another party? Uh, I would just ask people to look at the the Liberals and their first term in 2015, two uh, cabinet ministers stepping down, two women stepping down, and then being ejected from the caucus, another one crossing the floor to join the Conservatives, another one sitting, um, choosing to sit as an independent, all of that happening within a short period of time. That didn't, you know, the Prime Minister went on and survived, and certainly his leadership wasn't called into question, so... I feel like um, I have to learn from this experience, but I absolutely believe that what has happened has been a totally disproportionate response. Uh, you mentioned on Monday as well that this has been a, a quote-unquote incredibly painful experience for you and your family. Is what you're doing worth all the pain? I really hope so, because that's, <laughs> that has to be, uh, that has to be, um, you know that's what is left. I, I really, I really hope so. It, it is a lot for for anyone to go through, and and I think I also said uh, on Monday that that the price still is too high. And and Jody Wilson-Raybould made this point, um, and Mumala Kakalak as well when she uh, when uh, when they both uh, uh, said that they would not be running again. That uh, the politics in our country, the culture is toxic. It is um, very unwelcoming. It is very difficult for those who have not been in those roles before uh, to be able to stay in them. And if we want a better type of politics, then we have got to insist upon it. And some of us have to um, be able to stick around. So I think, ask me that question in six months to a year. (laughs) And if I've been able to impact policy in a positive way, if I've been able to help us tackle the climate emergency, um, get us universal pharmacare and all of the others, you know, guaranteed livable income, then then it will have been worth it. And so um, I that's what I keep in my mind every day. We have a couple more minutes with Annemi Paul, leader of the Green Party, here on the Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL, 900 CHML. Rick in for Bill this week. Uh, apart from the pain, we'll put that to the side, but a federal election could be called, even though you don't want one, as early as next week, because the Governor General is going to be installed on Monday, and who knows when the writ could be dropped. Um, you have issues with staffing and funding as well. How optimistic are you going into an election? Well, I I think that the more uh, people get to know the green candidates that are running in the area, the more they'll be excited. The more that they get to learn about our policies, um, particularly around completing the social safety net, and especially at this moment around tackling the climate crisis, uh, the more they're going to be attracted to our party. And so 
the more time that we have uh, to share those messages, um, the more time I have to um, travel around the country and to meet with people, uh, the better the better I think our chances uh, will be. And so that's what you know that's what I want to focus on, and that's why it's so important to get this uh, this certainty this week. Um, you know, we, we are still the party that has the best policies on the climate, and we're still the party that wants to work across party lines uh, to finally bend the curve on the climate emergency. So um, that's something that should excite everyone in Canada, that kind of ambition at this moment. In terms of goals for the election, is adding another MP one of those goals, and how realistic do you think that is? Absolutely, it's a goal, and absolutely, it's uh, realistic. You know, we have uh, we have a number of seats across the country where our internal polling has shown us that we're neck and neck uh, with um, with incumbents. You know, even long-standing incumbents. Uh, as you know, we've got a great uh, Green Party presence out in British Columbia. We have a great Green Party presence out in New Brunswick and Prince Edward Island, where Greens are elected. And when Greens get elected, they always stay elected. And I know Greens have never lost uh, an election once they get elected. So, um, yeah, we feel really, really positive about uh, candidates uh, all over the country. And, uh, you know, they're getting to work already in their communities. So I would expect us to pick up seats uh, in the next election uh, whenever it happens. If that doesn't happen, do you still expect to be the leader after the leadership review? Well, that will be up to our members, and uh, that will and that will also be a question for me. I think it's really important after any election, whatever the result, for any leader to ask themselves, uh, you know, is it best for my party for me to continue? Is there still something that I'm able to contribute? Uh, is there someone uh, else who might be better able to contribute it? So those are all things for the day after uh, the next election. But I, I definitely, what is that expression? I came into politics for kind of to paraphrase, you know, for for not a long time, right? You know, it's not a, for a good time, but not a long time. <laughs> I really want to contribute for a certain amount of time and then definitely make space for someone else. So, um, you know, that's a great question. And I would say invite me back after the next election and ask me again. I'll consider that uh, an invitation to do so. And me, Paul, really appreciate the time today and uh, good luck with the election. And uh, of course, the leadership review when it does happen. Thank you so much, Rick. Thanks for having me on the show. Appreciate it. Annemie Paul, leader of the Green Party, joining us here on the Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL London, 900 CHML Hamilton. Um, yeah, the, the, the waters are really choppy right now with the Green Party because of the what happened back in May. Um, you know, there's there's little funding or little new funding for the party and for Ms. Paul for her uh, Toronto Centre riding. Um, you know, the, the staffing levels aren't what they should be for an election campaign. And, you know, maybe the party executive will change its mind or tweak its kind of um, you know, strategy for this uh, impending election. And, and who knows, maybe when the writ is dropped, the Green Party will say, all right, it's election time. We've got to pull out all the stops. And you know that the leader, the executive, the council of the party got to be on the same page. And if they're not, we could see uh, maybe zero Green MPs. You know, there might be that kind of recourse with what has happened. And maybe Green supporters will want to say, you know what, we need a, a completely fresh start Uh, And and we just can't support the party at this time. Who knows? It might be the complete reverse. There could be a rallying point for Ms. Paul and a lot of supporters out there saying, hey, let's give her a shot. Let's see what she can do with a few more people in the House of Commons. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Tokyo's COVID-19 infections surging to 1,832 new cases today, just 
two days before the games are said to officially open. That's a six-month high in the Japanese capital, which is under a state of emergency, the fourth one in the city. And that state of emergency is expected to last until August the 22nd. That'll cover the entire Olympics. The Paralympic Games uh, start August the 24th, so the Paralympics won't be covered by that state of emergency. We know that there will be no fans in any of the venues in Tokyo. There are some limited fans that will be taking in some of the games outside of the city. Some events are being held outside. Um, But Japan's Medical Association president saying, quote, we have worried, uh, what we have worried is uh, now actually happening. And uh, the prime minister of Japan is taking a lot of criticism for what some say uh, the government is prioritizing the Olympics over the nation's health. We also heard today from the World Health Organization, which says the Tokyo Olympics should not be judged by how many COVID-19 cases arise because eliminating risk is impossible. There is no zero risk in life. There is only more risk or less risk. And you have done your best. That is the WHO Director General who also said that the IOC um, organizers have done their best to make the games as safe as they can be and how infections are handled is what matters most. The mark of success is making sure that any cases are identified, isolated, traced, and cared for as quickly as possible. And onward transmission is interrupted. The number of games linked COVID-19 cases, as this would be among athletes and coaches uh, already in Japan this month, is already at 79. And more international athletes have tested positive at home, and they have not been able to participate or won't be able to participate in the games. So will the games in the 11th hour get canceled? Philip Lipsy is the director of the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy Center for the Study of Global Japan at the University of Toronto and joins us now. Mr. Lipsy, how are you today? Great, great. Thanks for having me. The Tokyo Olympics, uh, which begin Friday, opening ceremonies just a couple of days away, they can't be canceled, can they? I I think it would be very unlikely at this stage um, for the games to be canceled. Uh, We already have some competitions uh, starting. Um, We just saw the uh, women's soccer uh, competition begin with Canada versus Japan. Um, It was a great game, by the way. Um, I, I think the government... Uh, has staked so much on the success of the games at this stage that unless it becomes absolutely inevitable uh, because of an explosion of cases or something extreme like that, I I would be very, very surprised if they pulled the plug at this stage. And that explosion would have to be amongst the athletes, right? I mean, if if citizens in Tokyo, if the case count continues to rise, you know, above 2,000 or whatever the case is, I think the games, because it's in kind of a bubble format, can still proceed, right? I think that's right. Um, You know, there, there are a few things going on here. One is they have a really rigorous testing regime in place uh, for uh, participants in the games, including the athletes. So they're being tested daily. And one thing that we know about COVID-19, you know, from the outset is the more tests you conduct, the more cases you're likely to find. And so, you know, it's, it's 
inevitable that you're going to find lots and lots of cases uh, among the participants um, at this stage, at least. We've already seen quite a few, as you mentioned. Um, and I think the key thing here is to keep that bubble intact as much as possible. We've already seen reports of journalists uh, uh, entering the country to cover the Olympics, uh, going to bars, for example. Um, and so the local media is criticizing the government and the organizers for not really implementing that bubble as rigorously as they can. So I, I do think there's some room for improvement in separating the, the games from the population. I mean, after all, they said, we're not going to have spectators. Um, and if you're allowing participants to hang out in the city, then uh, it, it sort of defeats that purpose of uh, limiting spectators. I think when we all heard that the Olympic Village was going to be in, you know, a bubble similar to the NHL and the NBA and what they did last summer and fall, we all thought, okay, there's, there's going to be no cases because the NHL and NBA bubbles were absolutely perfect, but it, it hasn't happened in Japan. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a bigger challenge in a lot of ways because obviously, you know, you, you have... Um, you know, people converging from all over the world, right? The IOC says there is 200 plus nations uh, participating in the Tokyo Olympics. And so, you know, you have people traveling from all corners of the world where vaccination rates are very different. The prevalence of COVID is very different. So even if you try to uh, then create a bubble around them, uh, I, I think it is a, a more difficult challenge that the Tokyo organizers are facing than we saw in the NBA, for example. Um, but, you know, I, I think that was to be anticipated. You know, this is not a surprise. Um, so I think there was a calculated risk taken that uh, despite uh, COVID potentially coming into the country, that they could keep the outbreaks limited, that the precautions would be sufficient, and the games could go on uh, without creating this um, disaster scenario, essentially, right? Um, and, you know, so far, I think it looks um, like, uh, it, it doesn't look like we're headed towards a disaster, let's say that. There, there are cases being observed, um, and there's some evidence that uh, limited community spread is happening. Um, but so far, uh, I wouldn't say so good because some of that is going on, but it doesn't look like it's it's sort of running away uh, and out of control. So I guess we'll have to see how it how it evolves. Philip Lipsy is the director of the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy Center for the Study of Global Japan at the University of Toronto. Joining us here on the Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL London, 900 CHML Hamilton. Rick in for Bill this week. Um, so if the games go ahead as scheduled, and I think we're all in agreement that they're probably going to go ahead, can you foresee a sport or an event maybe not being able to finish because of an outbreak? Yeah, I mean, that that's certainly a possibility, right? Um, you, you can imagine a scenario, uh, especially um, in team competitions, um, baseball, for example, where uh, there's an outbreak that affects uh, an entire team. And if that happens at the right moment, uh, right before the finals competition, for example, um, you know, you, you can imagine a scenario where you, you, you can't have that key uh, event. And so 
I wouldn't rule that out. Um, you know, there there might be a way to postpone uh, to a limited degree, but um, you know, I, I don't think they could do a two week quarantine for the entire uh, baseball team and then redo the finals afterwards. For example, right? That that seems unrealistic. So I wouldn't be surprised if some competitions uh, do uh, end up uh, in that kind of unusual situation, um, but. I, I also doubt that that's going to be the entire games, right? So in, in a limited sense, for sure. I was thinking the example that was in my mind was a, uh, a singles competition like, you know, uh, Olympic diving or synchronized diving or synchronized swimming, which is also a team aspect. But, um, you know, some of the top competitors, three or four or five, you know, come down with a virus and they're not able to compete. And, you know, if it's towards the end of the games, they might say, all right, you know, this event is postponed, which would be tragic. Um, should that happen or should the games be postponed at any point for whatever reason, or even the thought of it? I mean, how damaging is this to Japan on the world stage? Well, certainly, um, you know, I, when, when the, Olympics in Tokyo were announced. Uh, it was with a lot of fanfare. Um, you know, the government was setting it up to be um, essentially an event that would mark uh, kind of Japan being back, right? Former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe uh, really emphasized that he was reviving Japan from economic stagnation and Japan was going to return as a major force on the world stage. And he really uh, thought that the Olympics would cap off that resurgence of Japan in many ways. And of course, he's not prime minister anymore, but I think the government still sees the games uh, as symbolically very important. And, you know, Japan's reputation is certainly on the line. Um, Can Japan pull these games off? Um, And did they make the right decision to hold the games despite the fact that the pandemic is still ongoing and the vaccination rate in Japan is relatively slow in international comparison. So, you know, the, there, there's, of course, the optimistic scenario that we all hope uh, will, will prevail, that the games uh, go off without a hitch and uh, everything is great. Um, but, you know, if, if it turns out uh not that way. I, I think the reputational hit to Japan would certainly be significant. It seems like the games are already taking a hit because you have major sponsors like Toyota, Panasonic, Fujitsu, NEC, either pulling back their advertising or not being uh, involved in the opening ceremonies, which is the most watched event. That's going to be a hit maybe even to the psyche of the organizing uh, committee. Yeah, for sure. I think I think that's also a calculated decision by some of the sponsors that basically, given how controversial the um, games have become, that um, you know they, they may not benefit as much from participating advertising uh, related to the games. Um, there was some speculation that even the Japanese emperor might modify his opening remarks. Uh, in a way that isn't quite as celebratory as uh, they would usually be, uh, because you know uh, there's public opinion polls, for example, that suggest about 40% of the Japanese public does not want the games to go on. And so, you know, under mo- most circumstances, an Olympics is something that the country uh, comes around and everybody is is in a good mood and and so forth. But this is becoming a little bit divisive. Um, a little bit might be an understatement, frankly. And so, uh, 
you know, I, I, I think that is certainly playing into the, the psyche. And, you know, it, it could be that if the games are successful, uh, you'll, you'll have everybody rallying around and saying, oh, it was a good decision after all. It wasn't too bad. So I, I wouldn't rule that out. But at, le- at least at this stage, it's still very, very controversial. Peter Lipsy is our guest. He's the director of the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy Center for the Study of Global Japan at the University of Toronto here on The Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL, 900 CHML. Rick in for Bill today. The Paralympics begin August 24th. If the Olympics happen and there's, you know, some cases here or there, maybe an outbreak, but they conclude it's deemed a success, um, depending on how this uh, virus is being transmitted in Tokyo at the time, the Paralympics will have to go ahead, will it not? I I agree. Yeah, I I think um, there will be a very strong momentum to go ahead with the Paralympics. There's already some discussion that maybe by then allowing spectators will be possible. Um, so, you know, again, you know, who, who knows, right? It, it depends so much on uh, the course of the pandemic. But uh, yeah, I think politically uh, to say, you know, we did the Olympics, but no, the Paralympics, uh, we're not, we're not going to be able to do that. That that would be very damaging politically. And so I, I find it hard to imagine that they would uh, go down that route. Yeah, that would be tragic and certainly would send uh, the, the absolute wrong message. Let's fast forward to next February. The Winter Olympics are in China, the birthplace of COVID-19. Organizers there must be playing uh, close attention to what's happening in Japan. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, you know, I, I think the timing will will work out better for next February, given where vaccinations are headed. Uh, I think Japan is in a bad spot in many ways because uh, you know, they, they decided to make this decision to postpone by one year. And even when they made that decision, the vaccine timelines looked a little bit questionable. It, it didn't look like a, a slam dunk, basically, right? Um, and, and that's coming to pass, right? Uh, you know, the, the, the big problem that Japan's facing is uh, the domestic population is only at about 20% fully vaccinated. So you have a big share of the Japanese population that's very vulnerable and, and feeling anxious about the Olympics. Um, but the hope is that by next February, you can get those numbers higher in China, certainly, but in many parts of the world. And then you could say, okay, there's there might still be some risk of c- contagion, but the consequences won't be nearly as severe. And so, you know, assuming that we don't have new variants that, uh, you know, uh, kind of overcome uh, immunity from the vaccines and so forth. Um, I'm somewhat optimistic that uh, the Beijing Olympics will be less affected by this. But again, you know, I'm not an expert on that. So who knows? Philip Lipsy, appreciate the time today and enjoy the Olympic Games. Thank you. You too. Philip Lipsy is the director of the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy Center for the Study of Global Japan at the University of Toronto. A, um, a recent poll in one of the newspapers in Japan um, listed the number of respondents expressing doubt about the ability of Olympic organizers to control COVID-19 infections at 68%. That is a sky-high number. 68% of respondents to this poll saying they have their doubts. The Bill Kelly Show. Weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.
The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.